Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody come back, don't they? Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked room today, didn't you? How do the dead come back, Mother? What's the secret? The Twisted Wood It had rained for days, endless biblical days of downpour that came relentlessly as the wind, the deluge that threatened to break all banks and rise all rivers had arrived while I was at work, shuffling between meetings and managers from Newcastle to Barrow, all the time in my car listening to Marla and Sibelius and Iggy Pop, driving, 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 windscreen wet, drenched by torrents, becks in spate overflowing the road. You may know the road. It runs straight to an extended cut of pines, not far from Solby. No matter if you don't, I hardly know it. The motorway had been flooded and foolish as I was, I thought maybe this was a way through, back home to Barrow, or Paradise, as the wits have it, actually, Urswick. Great. There wasn't much traffic on it that night, as the darkness blossomed in from the east like a cancerous flower, and soon enveloped the world. The water sheet shone in the headlights, it stretched right across the road, illuminated in my yellow beams as I slowed. Perhaps I could get through it. It looked like a stream had diverted with the heavy rain and now channeled its way from wood to wood across the asphalt corridor. The engine idled, and I decided to take my chance. I wanted to be home with my wine and warm, not out here, in the middle of a nowhere made more desolate by the unkind weather. I gunned the pedal and plunged into water that was deeper than I thought. The waves surmounted the bonnet with a hiss and then a sudden stop, as though the car was poleaxed and left dead in the restless water. Oh, fuck. I slumped over the wheel. What was I to do now? I couldn't wait here. I saw the headlines. Community arts manager found drowned. I couldn't wait in the car. No, indeed, I couldn't wait in the car. Even now the water seeped in, dark and frothy around the soles of my shoes, soon threatening my midfoot then my ankle. I grabbed my gabardine and hat from the back seat, reaching over with a grunt, pulling it all to me. I snatched the strap of my black rucksack and checked it was closed and nothing spilled out. I have a habit of checking things more than once. So I opened the rucksack, making sure I had everything. My bag, my phone, whose battery was long dead, and my Tupperware box of uneaten sandwiches, hummus and rocket. I opened the door and saw the flood, I had no option but hopped into it, and it came up to the knees of my elegant trousers. They always say I'm dapper. No bother, the trousers were dry, and the car was leased. I waved it goodbye. I had heard you should stay by your vehicle and await rescue, but I couldn't wait there. The waters would overcome me, or I'd die of hypothermia. <clears throat> my plan was to walk back down the road I'd just driven. There must be a farmhouse somewhere. I vaguely recalled seeing a field of wigwams on the west side, but that was a summer's day many years ago, probably the last time I travelled this way. They were for tourists, and there were no tourists now. I trudged along the cheerless highway, face into the driving rain, with a wind that lifted and fretted at me, so I kept my hand on my hat to prevent it from being blown away. I walked for a quarter of a mile, It felt like a hundred miles, until at last, gratefully, 
The rain went from pouring to drizzling, then to merely dripping from the overhanging branches of larch trees. The wind lessened as well, from a roaring to a moaning, and I could take my hand from my hat and look around. No moon sailed the sky, or if it did, it was entombed behind thick miles of black cloud. The forest hissed and rustled on either side, on every side the gurgle and rush of flood water. After another ten minutes I reached a broken bridge. In the dark I hadn't seen it, as I drove across before the car went into the flood, but now I saw the stones of the bridge were carried away in the torrent that flowed the height of a man and more, driving all in its way from broken boughs to agricultural barrels to dead sheep. There was no possibility I could cross that. I thought of walking back to the car and trying to wade through that flood, but I knew that was suicide. I was stuck, trapped between two torrents of water in the middle of a dark and trackless wood. I would have to await rescue. And then it came to me that perhaps in the poor visibility when the rain hammered down I had missed a turning into the wood. Maybe there was a lesser way that led to a farmhouse or a cabin. God knew a cabin to wait out the night would do me. In the morning, things would be better. I shuffled my weary way back along the single-tracked road. It was still dark, but somehow a tenebrous glow gave vague illumination, and I wondered if it were some phosphorescence from a strange fungus or rotten wood. After ten or fifteen minutes, I lose count, I stopped. I peered to my left. The shadows seemed somehow thinner there. I listened to the dripping of water and the rush of unseen watercourses. No animal moved in the wood. I stepped closer. Yes, there was a track, probably a forestry track, but did foresters need shelter? I told myself they did. Maybe a little way into the forest I'd find a cabin or even a lean-to. I told myself it was healthier than standing out on that damned road all night until dawn. Such a shelter might also be dry. I walked along the rough forest track, damp trees leaning in on either side and crowding in overhead like gossiping hags. After four minutes or so I came to a clearing. Here were piled cut logs, rows and rows of them, stacked on each other maybe three times my height. In the dismal wood, I also saw a building. My prayers were answered. It was a rough hovel, not what I expected foresters to use. It looked older and more idiosyncratic than anything they would build. It looked just the kind of house a witch might have buried in the wood. I laughed at my fears. What was worse, the irrational fear of midnight witchery or the real risk of death from hypothermia? I went to the door, rattled the handle and yelled, Anybody home? The weird cottage was lightless, the windows blind and blank. It smelled abandoned. It sounded as if it were asleep. The door was unlocked. I pushed it open with a deep breath. I stepped inside. If anyone had ever lived here, it was a long time ago. The furniture was made of wood and could not be dated. Any primitive might have cobbled together this rough stuff at any time from the dark ages until today. The windows were glazed but fusted with spider's web, huge mats of cobweb looking like they were centuries old. 
and dust on the floor so thick that my feet left inch-deep impressions. The place smelled damp, but the rain was not in. It was not somewhere I relished being, but as the rain began again outside, I pushed the door closed and made myself as comfortable as I could. I had only to wait until dawn, then everything would become normal. When I awoke, it was already day, or at least that's what I thought. It's true, light came in the mildewed window, but the quality was odd, like a neon grey, brighter than it should be, but also less penetrating. The cottage door was still shut, though I could see light seeping through cracks in the boards. I went out to peer at the weird day. I was where I had been, in a clearing with logs piled up amongst the churned-up ground. The tire marks of heavy vehicles were evident, and oil-stained water glimmered blue and gold and black in the ruts. The cottage was even more ramshackle than I had taken it for when I arrived last night, but at least it had afforded me shelter, and I would not curse it for that reason alone. It had been useful. Hail to the cottage, and thanks. Standing there at the door of the hovel, I looked up. There was no sun. Neither was the sky full of clouds. In fact, it seemed that light suffused the sky rather than emanating from any one spot. It was spotless as a summer's day, but instead of blue, the sky was spread with a self-luminating grey. And another thing was the trees. They looked normal enough, spruce and larch and pine, but they were festooned with hanging threads and webs as if enormous spiders spun gossamer between their branches. And if the spiders were this big, I quailed to imagine how large were the flies. I'd never seen anything like it, and I wondered whether it were a local phenomenon. Perhaps this forest here was struck by a strange blight. As I listened, I heard no birds. The familiar sounds of jackdaws and pigeons were absent. No blackbirds called alarms, no wrens clicked their displeasure at my presence. Indeed, the air was filled with clicks and whirs, and other noises stranger to describe and unrecognisable to me. Where had I ended up? It didn't matter, for I knew the main road wasn't far hence. The rain had subsided, and so soon, I guessed, would the floods my car would stand high and dry and likely immovable in the middle of that straight road that cut through this mysterious wood. I would wander back and leave this weird woodland behind me with its diseased webs and odd ticking and snapping noises. But first, by habit, I checked whether I'd left anything in the hovel. I'd lost a hundred hats that way and countless sets of gloves and now always reminded myself to look again before moving off. I shoved the door and glanced round the grim downstairs of the cottage. There were stairs going aloft, but I had no inclination to explore. I wanted to get home and comfort myself with familiar surroundings. None of my possessions were mislaid, but as I looked round the room, I saw a glistening object on the floor, under the hollow legs of a rude wooden bench, looking as if it had been deliberately stowed to be out of sight. But my stumbling around in the dark and budged the bench and disturbed it. What was it? It was multicoloured with rainbow hues. 
an imperfect oval, like an overlarge fruit, bigger than a coconut or pineapple, slightly. I went down on one knee and with fingertips reached and scrabbled to bring it forward so I could snatch it. It was wonderfully smooth and warmer than I had expected. It felt organic, perhaps wooden, but as I handled it and felt again its mysterious heat, its smooth material, it seemed living almost. The thought occurred to me it might be cheating, the fabric that makes up the skeleton of insects, and the heat seemed self-generated as if a strange process were going on inside, a composting or an alchemical fermentation. Instinctively, I tapped it. It sounded hollow, or at least not solid, and then, as I examined it, I saw a seam, a crack, and getting the edge of my thumbnail into it, I worked it, and it came open. Inside, the most wonderful glittering thing was revealed. It was a cocoon of diamonds that sparkled by their own inner fire. They hinted red and yellow and blue sparks of light. I was amazed. What wonder was this? How valuable a thing to find in a deserted house, in the middle of a deserted wood, in the heart of a deserted county. The colours were rich, vaguely eastern, though whether from the Hejaz, Samarkand or far-famed Malabar, I did not know. I wanted to take it more than I can express. Its iridescent beauty, as bright as a peacock feather, had captured my heart, and I coveted that rare thing even though I didn't know what it was. But it was not mine. I placed it on the floor, I stood, went to the door, but then turned and stared at my lacquered container. It lay glimmering in the gloomy surroundings, blue and yellow and red and gold. It must be lost. It must have been stashed here years ago when this place was inhabited, and since, long forgotten. Its true owner beneath the sod many a year. In truth, it belonged to no one. No one owned it and so it could belong to me. In a rush I went down, picked it up and stuffed it into my black canvas rucksack where it was hidden among the Tupperware and notebooks, a jewel amid trivia. I hurried out of the door, not looking back, though I was careful to close the door firmly behind me. Who knew? Perhaps another traveller would need shelter and it would be better to leave the spot as dry as possible. I strode down the forest trail back, as far as I could tell, in the direction... I had come the night before. All the time, despite the inhospitable surroundings, despite my aches from a night on a wooden bench, despite the cold and damp and my broken car, I felt the fire of triumph kindle in me. I had found this wondrous thing, and I knew it indicated a change in my fortunes. I had laboured, with my talent unrecognised, a minor director of a community arts project in Barrow of all places. I deserved better, and now I would get it. I would tell the story of the box's findings, but with details concealed so that its true owner could never prove from whence I obtained it, if they lived, if it had an owner. I suppressed feelings of guilt, and even began to whistle with happiness. But the trees were not right. They were not normal trees. I had taken them, for those that grow in an ordinary forest plantation, but that was not so. 
These were the oddest trees I had ever seen, and though I am no arboriculturist, I knew they were wrong. They glistened and were bulbous and where leaves and needles should be. They had growths, but the trees, even in that ghastly grey light, were not the most unnerving thing. It was the sounds. I didn't know if the trees themselves made those odd whirrings and whisperings, or the clickings and chatterings, or whether whatever lurked amid their twisted boughs did it. But I hurried my pace. Soon I would be back at the main highway and normality. But I found I had somehow lost my way. The wood was not as I remembered it. The path was twistier and stranger, and soon I stopped and looked and tried to orientate myself with growing panic. It was a minute before I noticed him. He was, I would say, a tramp. His clothes of brown and green were old and stained and much mended. His boots were sturdy, but not new. He had wild hair and a beard of brown, but twisted with grey. His eyes were brown too, and he watched me. Ah, I said, starting, for he had surprised me with his silent watchfulness. My car broke down last night, the, the flood. The flood, he said. The weather was bad. And then something moved in the tree over his head. My glance started up and I saw a spider as large as a big bird scurry across a thread of silk into a funnel of web. I jumped back. My God! He raised an eyebrow. The spiders? I felt my stomach lift. I imagined its spindly legs crawling over me and its huge faceted eyes peering into mine. I've never seen one so big. And these trees? What species are they? He studied me. You don't know where you are, do you? I shrugged. I've never been here before, but I presume. Don't presume. You are lost, and you will never be found again if left to your own devices. My brow creased. I accepted I needed help. Do you know where we are? I do indeed. I come here hunting. Hunting? What? Foxes? Stranger prey than foxes, he said. But don't you bother about what I'm after. I can show you the way out of here. Would you? I'd be very grateful. I find myself most disorientated. He laughed. Many do. But most who come here never leave. Never leave? Whatever do you mean? I mean what I say. I had to be practical. All this jibber-jabber wouldn't serve. I said, I'd be grateful if you could show me the way out. He nodded. I offered, do you need payment? I have some cash. He shook his head. I don't need payment. I'd be glad to help you as a good deed. That's very generous of you, very Christian. I'm not that, he said. But then again, neither are you. Something fluttered across the clearing behind us. I swiveled my head round and saw, to my amazement, a moth around six feet long with whirring wings, much wider than that. This was the cause of the strange whirring I'd heard. The thing flew with its huge goggle eyes and feathery antennae and powder-white fur. A day-flying moth. A day-flying moth. I've never seen one so big, he nodded. It's late in the season. Most are at the pupa stage now. Right, I agreed as if I knew what he was talking about. He said, you find the pupae lodged in safe places, awaiting inside a chrysalis awaiting the change to turn from caterpillar to moth. They liquefy and reform in the most wonderful alchemical process. You're quite the naturalist, I said. 
I'm a hunter, he reminded me. As we walked down the forest trail with the brown-clad man as my guide, the path was wholly unfamiliar, but I trusted him mainly because I had no option. Also, why would he try to trick me? There was no advantage for him in doing so that I could see. As we walked, I asked, Is, is the road close? Just, I'm anxious to be on my way home. Of course, everyone wants to get home. So, the road. Ah, yes, very close. We walked on. There was still no sign of the highway. I said, I don't recall walking this far last night. He smiled. This wood is very strange, as you've noticed. Its ways are not the ways of other woods, you know. And I struggled to remember which woods I knew, precious few. But even those I had a passing acquaintance with were nothing like this. As if making conversation, my brown-clad guide said, You slept in the cottage. The abandoned cottage, yes, it was the only place I could find shelter. He nodded thoughtfully. It's been abandoned many a long year. Did you know the people who lived there? He shook his head and without looking at me, he said, It's empty now. I shrugged. Yes. Nothing of value in there now, he said. But something in his voice suggested he was testing me. I pride myself that I can read people. I cleared my throat. I didn't see anything of value. It was a poor, run-down place. Indeed. And he said nothing more for a while. By this time, we should have seen the highway, but there was nothing but twisted, misshapen trees in every direction, strung with webs woven by loathsome spiders with huge, bloated bodies. I was only glad they didn't leave their trees. I had no idea that spiders so big lived in my own country. Then, a large day-flying moth flitted in front of us, drawing a gasp from me, a shudder, and a step back. You don't like them, he grinned. Do you? He said, I'm used to them. They're harmless. They're huge, a thought occurred to me. You say you're a hunter. Is it the moths you hunt? Oh, no, he said most definitely. The moths are interesting, though. Really? I was unconvinced. They are big as moths, but they come out of a much smaller chrysalis. It's only about the size of a coffee flask, but multicolored, very beautiful. Oh, have you ever seen one? I shook my head vehemently, perhaps too emphatically. I said, how could I? I've only just ventured into this place. Of course, and you haven't been anywhere to see anything like that. The moth still hovered around, and I saw it drinking from huge arum lilies with a long proboscis that curled at the end. He saw me gaze at it in fear and said, they have a curious life cycle, those moths. Oh, I said, though I wasn't really interested, I just wanted to escape that damned wood. Four stages, not three. Well, uh, that's all very interesting, but I'm sure we must have got lost. None of this is familiar. He wasn't listening. Caterpillar, chrysalis, and moth are normal, of course. He laughed as if enthralled with his own story. But there is a stage between the chrysalis and the moth. I stopped. I appreciate that this is your special interest, and I'm most obliged for your kindness in showing me out of the wood. But actually, you haven't shown me out of the wood. Perhaps I should find my own way, he shrugged. Suit yourself. I had hoped he would just shut up and show me the way out. But if he wanted to play it like that, I didn't need him. Eventually I would find a road or even a field. There would be some end to these damn twisted trees. I paused, waiting for him to relent and say he had been teasing me and he would now show me the road. 
but he didn't. Fine, I said, well, thank you for your company. He nodded. I began to walk away. This track must lead somewhere eventually. The big tyre marks were long gone, and the only marks were those strange slithering shapes in the mud and tree mulch. From over my shoulder, I heard him call. Just one thing. He was going to change his mind. I stopped, smiling, then cleared my smile before turning to face him so he wouldn't see my look of triumph. Yes, I was thinking that the reason you can't leave the wood is that you have something that belongs to it. What? I blustered. What did this even mean? How could a wood own anything? Yes, local stories say you can't take anything from the wood. It won't let you. If you want to leave, you'll have to give up what you found. But I haven't found anything. No, of course not. Really? Like all liars, I protested my innocence long and loud. He just smiled. I turned on my heel and hurried off. As I walked, I thought of the beautiful coloured thing in my canvas rucksack. So that's what it was, the chrysalis of one of those alien moths. Such a beautiful thing. A buttercup yellow and poppy red and lapis lazuli blue veined with gold. And when I had cracked it open, inside was a thing of living diamond that sparked red and blue and yellow with its own inner burning. It was just a bluster. I wondered if he had been looking for the chrysalis. Maybe that's what he was hunting. I was sure they were worth a fortune, and I was only surprised I'd never heard of such things before. He had led me a circuitous route to bewilder me. He must have suspected the chrysalis was in the house, and was probably seeking it himself, but I got there first. That's what all these questions are about. He suspected I had it, but of course he couldn't know for sure. I laughed softly to myself. And this last desperate comment that the wood wouldn't let me take anything that belonged to it was surely intended to persuade me to surrender the chrysalis, and then he would point the main road out a hundred yards away beyond the trees, beyond the trees around which he had led me such a merry dance. I looked at the path. There were no boot marks here, and that proved the trail was little used. No foresters came here because it led nowhere. I turned. The brown-clad tramp was out of sight. I sucked my teeth. This path led nowhere. I would strike cross-country. I looked up at that infernally grey sky. It gave me no directions. Then I remembered that moss grew on the north side of a tree. But there was no moss. Only damp wads of cobweb hanging down. I shuddered again, imagining the spiders that wove them. I glanced left. The trees were not thickly clustering together. I could walk through that wood. There was nothing in these trees in England that could harm me. I gathered my courage and stepped off the path, heading as best as I could tell, for the road. I walked, at first light-heartedly, then less so. I found no road. I found no further path. I found no sign of mankind, just the scuttling of the spiders and the whirring of the moths and the clicking of God knows what else in the depths of the trees. I shuddered and hurried on. And after an hour, I was weary and sat down. I made sure I sat on a rock away from the tree so no enormous spider could scuttle down behind me unseen. I put the rucksack on my knees and fished in it for my useless possessions. Strangely, 
I was not hungry and neither had I craved food since I first entered this woodland. But the real goal of my search was the marvellous chrysalis. Even in the unfolding dark of my bag, it glowed with its wonderful array of gleaming colour. I took it out and held it in my hands, so light and still warm. Now I knew it was organic, the lightness of the material made sense, not wood nor plastic, but a living insectile material, tough and light, durable, and so wonderfully coloured. There, along the side of it was the crack I had already cracked open. That must be the lava of the moth inside. As I sat I felt drowsy. I struggled to remember the life stages of a moth, lava, chrysalis, adult. But the tramp had said that these giant moths had four stages. This was the chrysalis and I had seen the adult and the lava was the diamond thing inside, but I had no idea what the intervening stage was. A stage between chrysalis and adult, perhaps. My head lolled, dreams weaved around me, the forest clicked and whispered, and I slept. When I woke, I was lying on my back on soft beds of cobweb. I must have fallen from my rock and with no tree to keep me up, was now lying flat. Something moved on my arm, something glittering, glimmering, sparkling, as it shuffled along with little heaves of its diamond body. The grub had emerged from the chrysalis which lay cracked open and discarded on the forest floor nearby. I peered to see the little thing that was busy eating its way through my jacket and shirt. I saw smears of blood and drool on its quartzite mouth. Its head was halfway into my flesh, but I felt no pain. I looked bleary-eyed. I was anaesthetized by the secretions of its chomping, grub-like mouth. Standing nearby... Closely observing was the brown-clad tramp. You, I said, but I could hardly lift my head, so drugged was I by the little diamond thing. Me, he replied. But what? I was making little sense, I could scarce form the sentence. You asked me what I hunted in this twisted wood. If he expected a response, I could give none. The moth larva ate into me. I felt it burrow into my chest cavity. I felt its crystalline angles as it chewed through muscle, sinew, and fat. But it didn't hurt. The hunter continued, but I didn't answer because if I'd answered, it would rather give the game away. I don't understand, I said. The hunter smiled. Well, the truth is, I hunt people, he pointed. And I use those little things as bait. It's the glitter and colour, I think, he grinned. The glitter and the colour. They never fail to hook foolish men like you. Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody dies, don't they? Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked drawer today, didn't you? You How do the dead come back, Mother? What's the secret? So that was The Twisted Wood by Tony Walker. Yeah, it was me. I wrote it, I read it. Now, why did I do one of my own stories? I've never done one before on the Classic Ghost Stories podcast. I have done Living Writers, and I am still alive, but I've never done one of my own. Well, the podcast has got to its first anniversary. The podcast is one year old. It, we sent out the um, the Yellow Wallpaper as episode one 
on the 13th of September 2019. And the podcast has been far more successful than I ever thought. To be honest, when I started doing it, it was just because I like reading these stories out. But it seems that other people enjoy them too. So once once I learned that, I, you know, I gamified it, I suppose. And it was just, oh, I would just want everybody to listen to this. And as I say, over the years, I've done um, st- stories by living authors and interviewed them. So I'm not going to ask myself any questions because that would be really weird so The Twisted Wood is from my new collection, Horror Stories from Halloween. The audiobook isn't launched yet because I'm still editing it, but the KDP, you know, the, the print book, the e-book, the paperback is available and uh, there's a link in the show notes. And if you like this story, uh, you know, I, I think there's some good stories in it, but then I wrote them, so what do you expect? I would think... This story was going to be a story about the Mothman prophecies and set in, um, oh, I want to say Pennsylvania. I do know because I've read the book, but I, my mind's blank at the moment. So, but it got really twisted and ended up about a wood. And um, I'll tell you some of the influences. First of all, that road's a real road. I can see it's a very long straight road and there's um, a cutting of, uh, it's a forestry plantation, cutting of trees, very tall trees. And it's like an arrow, which is unusual for roads around here. We usually meander and have loads of bends and curves in them. And there was, in fact, a field of wigwams. And this is some years ago, and I think this was a tourist attraction. But And then, so that's one, it's a real place. This guy, you don't think he would go that way from Newcastle to Barrow, just geographically. But maybe if the motorway was blocked. So the other influence is we've had a lot of really bad floods over the past, probably, I don't know, global warming, whatever, or uh, to climate change, and uh, I've been personally flooded out twice. When I lived in Wales, I was flooded out once, so I've been flooded out of my house three times. And uh, what can I say? I don't like it. Um, so, yeah, that's real, and I've had that experience of going into water and thinking, oh, I can get my car through this. I've done that about three times. I don't do it anymore. But it was like, uh, oh, man, I'm, I'm not going to do this. So... Uh, yeah, those are real influences. Now, community arts managers, there's a project, I'm going to say this because I'm guessing that none of them will be listening to it, but there's a project um, which I actually have got a lot of time for. There's a lot of community arts projects that are funded by the government. At one point, I'll tell you the bad bit, I worked for one, this is about 15 years ago, called the Rural Touring Programme, and it was a really good job because I had to arrange arts events in village halls up and down rural Cumbria. And um, we put all sorts on jugglers, plays, music, all sorts. It was great. But I got fired. Imagine. I'm a good worker as well. So uh, the reason, it just was one of those personality things. And the, and the arts manager, that's my reading hour coming on there. I'm supposed to read now for an hour. Um, the manager didn't like me. And, uh, you know, she would say, oh, I'm getting close to identifying her there. But she would say, well, I'm not happy with your work, do this. So I'd report back, yeah, did it. Mm, well, yeah, do this. And it went like that. And in the end, she couldn't find a reason to fire me. So she just fired me and said, you don't think like we do. Okay, I had my revenge later on, not least in this story. So it is a little bit based on that. But the arts project locally that I really like is one called Eden Arts, based in Penrith. And they do some fantastic things. They do picnic cinemas. So you go out into the woods and watch... Uh, um, all kind of classic movies, and they tend to pick 
a setting that's appropriate for the movies, but often they're very cold because we live in a cold place. But even in the height of summer when they're on, but great idea. And then they do a thing called the, the winter droving. And if you keep in touch with um, my uh, Facebook page, you'll see in October, I don't know if it'll be on this work, this year, um, they do this fantastic kind of quasi-pagan winter droving festival. So either I'd do some great stuff, but I imagine them as being rather pompous. Uh, I don't... Mm, well, I don't know. But they do some good stuff. But you know, artsy people can be a bit pompous, really, honestly. Um, even if they're doing good stuff. So this is this guy, but it gave me the opportunity of writing this massively overblown, ornate language, which I both loved reading and writing the other way around. And I, of course, I admitted last week that um, I love Ray Russell for that reason, because of his language. I just love it. So, you know, Hemingway, be damned with your short, simple sentences. Let's just go over the top. I mean, you know, also, I like Poe and Lovecraft, so come on. You know, I, I, I like the Baroque. I think uh, in the last episode uh, of Vendetta, um, Ray Russell's character says, Lord Harry Stanton says he has a love of the Baroque. Well, me too, me too. I'm a bit of a goth, really. I once dyed my hair black, actually. Although it was so black, it went blue. That was the only time I ever did it. So anyway, there we go, that's it. So this is a dark fairy tale. He wanders into fairyland. I love fairy tales. And of course, if you go into fairyland, if this ever happens to you, never take anything from fairyland. A, never try to cheat them. B, or it won't go well. I wrote another story called uh, The Bucastle Fairies, and that was a dark fairy tale as well. So if you like the story, uh, three things, you don't have to do any of them, but if you like them, Share this story. It's a free one. Share it. Two, go and buy the book. Buy the book. Three, send people to sign up to this because we're doing it through Substack now. And I need to say a really big thank you to my friend Jonathan Sharp, who runs his, the Hartwood Institute. Um, check out some of the links to his music. Get hold of it on Bandcamp. There's some fantastic atmospheric stuff out there. Okay. Thank you again. Speak to Johnny, 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 speak to